Lots of things to take to the Lord in prayer, and that's exactly our focus this morning. I'd like you to meet me in the book of Acts, chapter 10. We're going to do a lot of Bible work today, which I think is a good thing for any service. I've often said, um, and I still believe that it is true, one of the things I have learned uh, in being a pastor here uh, at Calvary, or wherever I may be pastoring, um, the importance of prayer. I think it's oftentimes overlooked, and I think it's this way because a lot of religious action is wrapped up in repetitious prayer. Do, Do you understand what I mean? I've had many kids, sorry, I've had many kids that would come to Youth Ranch and they would be influenced by some type of Catholic uh, background and very prominent in the Catholic Church is the repetition of prayers. Um, For anything that you do wrong, uh, for confession, uh, Hail Marys, all those different things, there's a lot of repetition in that doctrinal system there in Catholicism. And I think it's important to recognize why that is, and we're going to go into that today. Uh, The second part of my message, which we'll get into when that time comes, is on the Lord's Prayer, breaking that down and looking at what Jesus said right before he gave the Lord's Prayer, which I think is so important. Context is very important. But this idea of prayer is probably one of the strongest things we have in this Christian life. And I think the reason why we struggle so much is because we have not learned the significance and importance of prayer. There is a soothing element to being able to bring our petitions to God, but the soothing element does not come in the fact that we can tell God what we need. It's who we're asking. That's where the power is. I've often heard in my studies on prayer and reading commentaries and people like George Mueller, who was, a, who was a man of prayer, he would be at the point where in the little orphanage that he would run, there was not enough milk for the children, where they would pray and they would pray. He had no means to buy it. He had no means to go out on credit and get that need. And they would pray and they would pray and go about their mourning, and he could not tell you how many times there'd be a rap on the door And the milkman would come and say, I have this left over, and it was plenty enough to feed the children. This is not the fact that George Mueller asked God to do something. It's the fact that he asked God. And God would take care of the rest. And there's a lot of peace and comfort that comes in that attitude of prayer. But oftentimes, that's not what's taught. You have the prosperity camp, which teaches that you, as a carnal, wicked person, now they're not going to say that, But as a carnal, wicked person, you can trick God into giving you whatever you want. You know, the reason why I don't have a million dollars is because I I don't have enough faith. And if I just had enough faith and I said the right things and I bought the right books from the right people, well, then I'd have all the money I could ever want. I saw a video just the other day of a man who's in this vein of thinking. His name is Kenneth Copeland. And he literally simulated the Lord's Prayer in communion and pretended to cut his hand and drain his own blood into a cup and say, this, this blood is the, the New Testament. And I'm watching this and I'm going, this is not Christian. 
This is demonic. But you know why he has all that fame and success? Well, number one, it's in the power of the devil. That's my belief, based on what that man says. And number two, everybody is looking to try and get God to do what they want. That's not prayer. You know, you're going to learn this if you haven't learned it already, but life is hard, amen? Life is difficult. There are things that happen where we would say, that's not fair. Okay, well, that doesn't stop when you're, you know, 18 years old. Life now becomes fair. Things continue to go on in unfairness. Why? Because God is unfair? No, because man is sinful. Man is fallen. But we learn how to ask God to meet our needs and step out of our own way through prayer and through the way that that's modeled. I want to start by looking at how God hears the prayers of those who are yet to be his children, meaning they have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, and he hears the prayers of those who are his children and even serving in the position of a king. We're going to look at these two examples briefly and then look at some things in Matthew chapter 6, but you're in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is a very interesting place in the book of Acts because it precedes the very first council of the church in Jerusalem. And if we fast forward a little bit to that council, there were some major problems happening with the gospel in the eyes of people who were converted Jews. And the reason was is because all of a sudden Gentiles now, which the Jewish people would call heathens, they're now a part of this body? Ooh, no, they're the, they're the dogs, they're heathen. You want to talk about some uh, class structure, some difficulties in the culture? That definitely existed between the Jews and anybody who was not a Jew. But now this doctrine of the Messiah has come, his name is Jesus Christ, amen? And all who put their trust in him are a part of this new thing called the, the what? Church. Where there is no Jew and there is no Gentile, there is no bond, there is no free. It's all one body, many members, led by one head. Who's the head? Calvary Community Church. Reform Theology. The Baptist. Who's the head, folks? Jesus. We do well to remember that. But now there was this major problem coming up because they're saying, we're not supposed to go to the Gentiles, but Peter, he has this testimony. Now he says, God gave me this instruction to go to this man. And we're looking at this story here, but I want you to see this man named Cornelius, he prayed out to God and his prayer was answered. Now, there are many people who would say that maybe Cornelius was already saved because of how the scripture describes him. But I think that it's pretty clear later on in Acts chapter 10 that he heard the gospel preached from Peter and the Holy Spirit fell upon them instantaneously, which would be a signifier that they believed the record is true. Now, he, he could be described as a just man by his messengers because what messenger is going to slander their representative? And say, yeah, I'm here for Cornelius. He's not that great. But you should come see him. You know, I don't think that they're going to say that of him. But the fact that he was, he was a God-fearer, and that was pretty common in the way that the gospel was getting out now, these non-Jewish people were learning to fear respectfully, reverential respect for the Hebrews' God. And that was in Jesus Christ. And this was a new thing. And Cornelius was actively asking God to answer his prayer. And God heard that prayer. We're in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band of the Italian band, a devout man, one that, and you should mark this here, feared God with all his house. 
He gave much alms, meaning he, he gave financially to the people, and prayed to God always. So he's doing all the religious acts that would uh, label somebody as, yeah, this, this guy's maybe even a Jewish, um, someone who's converted to, uh, to Judaism. He saw, verse 3, in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers. So please mark that here. And thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. So even the prayer of an unconverted man here, but he's seeking for the truth. Seek and you will find. I have come to see this. That, that is one of those things that I was hesitant when I first heard that because I, I heard it misused in the prosperity gospel, this idea of seek and you will find. And I, I totally see how that is accurate. I can't tell you how many people have written or called or some of you have come and talked to me and said, I just started seeking for the truth and all of a sudden I found the truth. I believe God wants people to be saved, amen? He desires for all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it would not surprise me that if people set aside themselves and begin to look for the truth from God, he will reveal it to them, amen? That's why this ministry is important. And any ministry that heralds the gospel out. I have no idea how many of you may be here today because you're seeking. You're looking for the truth. You've been looking and you haven't found it. There's been an error, whatever it may be. You've lived a life of carnality for yourself, and now you're trying to find out what does God say. That's a good thing. God will lead you to the truth. His son said it, and so we should believe it. Look in verse 30 now. And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Now, we've skipped a bunch of verses here, but in that content that we skipped, Peter has a vision. And in the vision, there is a sheet that, de that descends down from heaven, and it contains a bunch of unclean animals in the Jewish culture. And so that's a big no-no when God says to Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, that's unclean. I'm not going to eat what's unclean. The vision happens a second time. The vision happens a third time, and there's instruction given to Peter from God, what I have called clean, you do not call unclean. There's a, there, there's a shift here. This doesn't mean that now, in this period of time, Gentiles can be saved, because there were Gentiles who got saved in the Old Testament. But as far as the rolling out of the gospel, the way, the truth, and the life, Christianity, as it was first called by those who were followers of Christ in Antioch, it was now going to disperse outside of just the Jews receiving this information, it will now go beyond them and to the Gentiles. That's you and me. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And now this body of Christ is being built, and we're seeing the rolling out of this. And so Peter receives the instruction. He's obedient to it, and he goes, and he meets Cornelius. Cornelius now very excited. He had sent messengers to Peter. Peter responded by going, seeing that God was telling him that vision is for something actually to be done in reality. By the way, you ever want to measure if somebody's had a vision from God, if they've heard from God? Measure it by the standard of God's word. 
I always kind of grip my teeth and get a knot in my stomach when I hear somebody say, God told me. Because I can't wait to hear what they said God told them. And nine times out of ten, when I hear what God told them, it's contradicting what God has already said. And so you're respectful. You let people say what they need to say, but you then educate them on, do you know that God has said something different to everybody? You know how dangerous it is if we make interpretation of the Scripture private? Oh, you got to come to this church at this time, at this rate of financial commitment in order to hear what God said? It's freely available to all. When we start gatekeeping the truth, we can change it. And you study major religions like the Catholic Church, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. You study some of the things in Mormonism that they truly believe. They're getting away from that title now. They, they like to say now they're just LDS. But you go and find out what they're doing in these temples and the things that they're saying to the highest level of, of those in Mormonism, and you go, red alert, red alert, unbiblical. But they've gate-kept the truth. So, well, God gave it to a certain person, and you have to listen to only that person. We have the whole record here laid out. From Genesis to Revelation, you can measure this prophecy of Jesus Christ coming into fruition. Back into the, the, the message here, verse 31, And said Cornelius, Thy prayer is heard. Thine alms are had in remembrance of, in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon, a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore, <coughs> this is very <coughs> excuse me, important to notice, all this work has been done. The vision, the faithfulness of Cornelius to seek out the truth. To this point, Peter's response, Peter having the vision, all of it to this point. Look at what it says. Now therefore, we all here present before God to hear, that is to receive, all things that are commanded thee of God. And what did Peter do? Buy my free three-day thing that you have to pay on the fourth day, and then I'll tell you. Is that what he said? He said, good news, we have a conference in your area. No. What did he say? I, I like this, 34. Then Peter opened his mouth. He preached the truth. This is a man who was ready. He knew what to say, and he knew why he was there. Amen? That soul winning event that happened last night at Countryside Mall, People that were ready, they knew what to say, and they knew why they were there. Forty-something people came to faith in Christ last night as a result of people who were ready, prepared, and knew why they were there. This is the power that comes with knowing the truth of God's word. But you have an unbeliever here praying for the truth, and then God sending somebody. But notice, too, that Peter was not ready to go the first time. He actually said, no thanks. Second time, no thanks. Third time, no thanks. And God's like, hello, I have something for you to do. Boy, we can find ourselves being a lot like Peter. God gives us opportunity after opportunity, clear instruction after clear instruction, and sometimes he's got to shake the cage a little bit. And we go, whoa, maybe I should do what God said to do. But you know what I like about this is that God still used Peter. There'd be a lot of churches who would write somebody off. We ought to forgive and forgive and forgive and teach and teach and teach. 
rebuke when necessary, but man, if, if, if there's a limit that can be crossed, I'm so glad that was not applicable to my sin, amen? Jesus paid for it all. But he gave the gospel, and we know later on, everybody who was there, not just Cornelius, but everybody who heard the truth and believed it, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. They were born again. They're a part of the church. And this was such a monumental turn in the book that it demanded the first council of the church. Well, what do we do? Do we convert the Gentiles over to the law of Moses? Because that, what was, that's what was going out. Well, yes, they're Gentiles, but they got to be of the Jews. So all the men have to get circumcised. What bad news, right? You're 40-something years old. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then the next thing you hear is, circumcision, let's schedule it. Why was that so important? Well, because people were once again mixing the grace and freeness of salvation with the works of the law. And they were saying, indirectly, your works add to the faith so that you'll be justified before God. But those men, when they heard the gospel, they believed it and immediately they were sealed. None of those men got circumcised in order to receive that. They believed, they received. And we see that now in Ephesians chapter 1.13, after you believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Which again would combat any kind of theology that says you have to prove you're really saved by works. How so? And how many? And who is the one who says you've done enough? It all falls apart because it's not built on sound theological Bible doctrine. It's built on man's understanding of what really would convert a person. But this unbeliever, Cornelius, prayed to God. God heard his prayer. Now, what about the prayer of a king? Well, let's take a look at that. 2 Kings chapter 20. Second Kings chapter 20, verse, uh, excuse me, page number 447. <coughs> In those days, chapter uh, 20, verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amuz, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord. Now, you, when you see that statement, this is not Isaiah saying, uh, you know, I'm looking at the pros here and the cons here, and it's my assessment that you're going to die. No, when, he, when, when Isaiah says, thus saith the Lord, he's speaking on behalf of God. By the way, this is the measure of a prophet who is from God against a prophet who is a false prophet. When you see in Matthew chapter 7, it says, you shall know them by their fruit. Jesus is telling the disciples and all those on the Sermon on the Mount who are listening, you're going to know who a false prophet is, not by their works, but by what they say. Isaiah says, thus saith the Lord, because he is a true prophet who is communicating on God's behalf. The false prophet will say the same thing. Thus saith the Lord, and then lie. You read about that in Isaiah. You read about that in Ezekiel. Come to find out that people know how to cheat the system and actively try. And they're successful in many different ways. The gentleman I mentioned, Kenneth Copeland, he says a lot of things God told him that are not true in the scripture. So a person has to come down to a very simple decision. Who's right, God or Kenneth? I'm going to go with God. 
That's correct. And you got the double jeopardy. (laughs) Continuing, so he says to Hezekiah here, set thine house in order. Not good news if you want to continue to live physically here on the earth. For thou shalt die and not live. So this sickness that plagued Hezekiah, uh, it's a very serious illness and he should be preparing for death. Verse 2. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord. If you've done any study on Hezekiah, he's a man of prayer. Some would say he's a weak man because he didn't immediately act, but I would say he's a strong man, not because he and himself is strong, but because he knew where the strength is, amen? King Sennacherib's coming up, king of Assyria. Oh, we're going to besiege you. We're going to cut off everything in and out. You're going to be eating your own. So you've got to submit to me. What did Hezekiah do? He ran into the temple, spread that letter from Sennacherib for the Lord, and he asked God to deliver for the sake of Israel's name. And what did God do? He delivered. So now here he is facing his death. Maybe untimely, scripture's not clear on that, but he's facing his death and he petitions God. This is also an excellent point that man has a free will and can exercise it. That's pretty good. Verse 3. I beseech thee, this is his prayer, O Lord, Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Now some would say, ooh, that's not good. He he, he spoke of himself and his, his, his good deeds. The reason why this is important is because that was his responsibility as a king. Hezekiah is not the only one who has done right in the sight of the Lord as a king, but there were many who did incorrectly and were very wicked. And Hezekiah is saying, I have been faithful to what you have instructed me. Therefore, hear my plea. And then we have verse 4. By the way, it's such a simple, short prayer. And Hezekiah wept sore. The man was beside himself, probably wrestling with his desire to continue but also the sovereignty of God to take him when his time has come. And it came to pass, afore, which means before, Isaiah was gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, so now, this is not Isaiah saying, I feel bad for him. I'm just going to tell him that he'll have some more time. No, again, Isaiah is faithful to say what God told him to say. See whose authority this is all on here? You start recognizing that, especially when we get into Jesus' example of prayer, you're going to benefit greatly. You will have a much better day, let alone a much better year, (laughs) if we learn the power of prayer. Saying this, verse 5, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people. What a title, right? Hezekiah had a great responsibility, and man was faithful to it. He says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer. What a great comfort to know that God hears the prayers of his children. Amen? We don't waste time here on Wednesday nights. I'm not going here because, well, Yankee had a prayer service and Dr. Lindstrom had a prayer service, so I'll have one too. No, we, we have actually set aside most of the time. I'm up here with my little clickety-clack iPad, and I'm, I'm typing out these prayers. 
And then that night, I put them into a folder. And now I have three years worth of answered prayer. And that encourages me as a preacher. That encourages me when I have to sit down next to somebody who's going through it, and I can put my arm around them and say, we have a God who can, amen? And if it's in his will, he will. That strengthens a man. Not in his own strength and say, I got this now, I can do this in my carnality. No, no, my strength is in the Lord. And so we put it on him. Some people make that a condition. Well, if he hears my prayer, then I'll trust him. That is not how that works. And the sooner you figure that out, the better for you. The better. Hezekiah wept sore. He didn't want this to come to pass, but I believe he would have. If it came, it came. (laughs) But God said, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears, middle of five. Behold, I will heal thee on the third day. Thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. And I will add unto thy days 15 years, and I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake. Yes, we look at the greatness of Hezekiah in that he trusted in the Lord, but this is all for the Lord, amen? His power and his honor and his glory, and for my servant David's sake. And you know what? He's given some instruction here, and the man is healed. Sadly, he wastes the next 15 years. That's a choice he made, but God still heard his prayer, amen? So we've seen this example. Now let's take a look at what Jesus, the Son of God, tells us about prayer. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The last time I went to Israel, um, we went to, you know, you start off in Galilee. And if I had a choice, right... It was like, you could go for two days, but you could only go to Jerusalem or to Galilee. Which, which one would you go? I'd go to Galilee. Not because I think Jerusalem is less than, but because a lot of Jesus' ministry was done on those coastlines. And that, to me, is just cool. It's neat to get in that boat and let that air blow through your hair. Excuse me. Um, No, it's nice to look out on that coastline and know my Savior walked there and he taught there. And as a pastor, it's precious because you have the same responsibility to teach as an example. I don't clock in on Sunday morning. I didn't come in here and say, okay, 8.30, hit the clock. Here we go. That board meeting better wrap up because there's a, we might be in the playoffs later today. <laughs> there is no clock. For God's children, as far as clocking in and clocking out, it's every day, folks. This is who we are. It's not something that we do. And when I go to Galilee and I see that, it always impresses me. And this time, the little boat ride that we took, it went to a place where they were pretty confident that the Sermon on the Mount was taught. And I saw this in a chapel class, but there were some guys that were on a boat in Galilee And there was a guy who stood where they likely believed Jesus gave this address. And it was perfect acoustics. He stood, this guy stood however many miles away, or or, I don't know if it was miles, but it was a long way away, where I would go bring the PA system, you know, make sure we have an extension cord and an outlet. But where Jesus was standing there, he was teaching, and the mountainside was covered with people, and they could all hear him. And they were able to demonstrate that, and that's, that's just something special. 
You're reading that here. He's giving this address about the kingdom of God and those who will be in it. Now, this is a brand new thing. In Matthew chapter 3, we have John the Baptist saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And many people make that into a condition for salvation, meaning turn from sin in order to be saved. But in Jesus' ministry, there are three phases, and this is phase one where he's offering the kingdom, and contrary to popular Jewish belief at the time, it was not a political Messiah that was going to save them. It was a, quote, lowly man. From who? Joseph and Mary? This guy? A carpenter? Yeah. Repent. Ooh. Change your mind about what you thought and believe on him. And he's now giving this example of what the kingdom is going to look like and how those who dwell in it will behave. He gives this instruction here on prayer in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That sounds good. If my enemy hates me, I should just hate him even the more, right? And if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, well, I love my neighbor. What happens when your neighbor becomes your enemy? Whoop, 404, page not found. <laughs> Verse 44 says this, But I say unto you, he's not contradicting the law. He's getting them, may I have your eyes for a moment? He's getting them to realize Understanding God's instruction is not just in mindless obedience. It is here. How, how do you perceive this? Many would say it, it's your heart, right? But the scripture uses heart as well. It's the seat of our emotions, not our, this thing here. Do you love only in word and not in action? If that's yes, you need to change it up. It's not enough to just say, well, you know, and, and for an example, there was uh, the lesson on forgiveness there. You got to turn, you know, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but there's a lot of forgiveness. It's not to say, all right, I've got to forgive this person 70 times 7. Start the counter. And you do the math and say, when they get to that last one, now I don't have to forgive him anymore. No, that's, that's, that's not what that means. It's an attitude of forgiveness. It is a way of life with forgiveness at the root of it. It's a part of the foundation. So Jesus is giving, when he says here, I say unto you, he's not contradicting. He's getting to see, how's your heart? How's the way you perceive this instruction? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. There's a whole line of Christianity today that would say that's wrong. Think of our political opponent, op opponents. Just for a moment. Think of those who advocate for abortion. We've been conditioned politically that those people are not worth saving. If that's the way that we look at our political opponents, we cannot love God properly. I'm not afraid to take that stand because Jesus says it very plainly here. Those that despitefully come against me, I am to pray for them. Not to pray for their success. I'm not to tolerate it and say, oh, well, you know, I'm just a lowly Christian. Run me over. I'm not supposed to do that either. But I am supposed to pray for them as I would pray for the neighbor that I love. We need more of that in our young men. 
Not this macho, you know, power trip that men are taking today. Because young men, they have a vacuum that is not being filled with anything spiritual. The amount of carnality that is brewing in our young men, sometimes I often think that the Antichrist will use conservatism as his, as his tool. I really do. There, and there are people today who are claiming the name of God and saying all sorts of things that sound good, but they fall apart theologically. And here we are, as children of God, saying we hate our opponents. That's not the love of God. You're still a child of God if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, but your profitability goes down as our former president said, goes down bigly. Okay? It's not, not a good thing. And that, that requires a change. So when we're praying today, when we go to prayer today for communion, and we think about the Lord's body, and we go to prayer on Wednesday night, and we pray for our leaders, do we only pray for the good ones? What can we pray for the ones that are desperately wicked above all things? Who can really know them? We pray for their conversion. Can God get their attention? Can he do it through you? Not if you hate him. Not if you despise him. Oh, I'll soul win, but I'm not going to soul win to the homosexual. No, no. Really? Educate me on that in light of what the scripture says. We are to pray for our enemies. We're to pray to God not for man's recognition and praise, but for God. Look at chapter 6. Verse 5, chapter 6 and verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, some would say, so, any, so Jesus is saying, any form of public prayer is bad. So our brother Warren, I'm sorry. You're a bad man. What is the intention here? What is Jesus pointing out? The purpose of their public prayer. Notice where these men are standing that Jesus uses in the illustration, the synagogue and the street corners. Those are both public places. You say, well, no, you know, you got the Holy of Holies in the synagogue. Okay, but I'm talking about the open court. We see this in our worship culture today. All this, you know, throwing up of the hands, the waving back and forth, the wailing. I was at a conference in Denver in 2014 where I saw a woman beside herself. She fell on the floor writhing in, in this worship. And everything that was going on the stage just kept going, and everybody's attention was on this woman. And people are just laying hands on her forehead and praying all sorts of whatever. I don't even know. I'm sitting over in the corner going... I don't know if this is of God or not. But the focus of whatever she was doing was brought on her, whether she intended to have it that way or not. That was the result. Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray for the attention of man. Don't pray as those who pray on the street corner and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that publican. I give my alms and I pray and Ooh, I'm somebody. Thank you, Lord. All praise and honor and glory to you. That's not how we should pray. I'm not supposed to stand up here, and nor is Warren supposed to lead us in prayer for us to go, wow, that Warren's somebody. <laughs> That's not the intent. Look what it says in verse 6. When thou prayest, enter into thy closet. 
your bed space, your private space. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Why is this important? This is not saying you can only pray in your bedroom now, Jesus has said. What this means is, if you are the one praying publicly, if you are praying so people see you, get in a private place and try to pray the same way. Things will change. You don't have an audience anymore. You don't have people to go, wow, look at that guy. Now it's just you and God. And if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. And I guarantee you, you will come under conviction. You won't pray the same way you will in your closet. I would say the vain prayer would probably not be able to pray for 30 seconds. He doesn't have enough eyes on him. Oh, I don't know what to say. Well, maybe that's because you're praying so people can see it. And you're not really praying to God. You see how deceitful we can be, even of ourselves? This is to test your motives. Why are you praying? You know, when I was with Louis last night, which, you know, I think Louis's fine, but, you know, he was there, and that is concerning. And I'm, I'm thankful for those who took him to the hospital and made sure that he got checked out. I mean, only good can come from it. I don't know about, you know, deductible stuff, but, you know, it is what it is. That gets you some way. But as we're talking and, and all these different things, you know, 8.30 becomes 9.30, becomes 11.30, becomes 12.40. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, God forbid if this was totally different and Louis on a stretcher and they're trying to save his life. I know that anything that I pray to God his situation is already taken care of. If he were to have died, I'd rather be where he's at. And I know that because I know Jesus. And I know that he knew Jesus, not in some experiential way of practice and being a good soul winner. He put his trust in Jesus. So we're all going to be taken care of. But when we prayed for him last night, it was good to just pray knowing the motive was for God's will to be done. We thank God for the doctors. And for those who have devoted their lives to the proper study of, you know how incredible our bodies are? Think about our first president and the way that they solved his issues. Aren't you glad they're not doing that today? Warren, you're sick. Come on, I'll take care of you. Let all the blood out. Hmm. You know, God said something about the blood. There's life in it. Interesting. But it was good last night, even at 1240 when we're tired. I didn't have plans to be at the emergency room, nor did Mr. Hernandez, nor did Celia or George and Tina. But it was good to be able to pray to God and know he would hear our prayers, even if Louis were to get bad news. I don't say, make sure the doctor and nurses are in here. Oh, Lord! <laughs> Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You know? Testing the motives. I would challenge you today to get into a quiet place in your home where it's just you. You don't even have to tell anybody, honey, I'm going to pray. <laughs> you don't even have to say that. Just find a quiet place and start talking to the Lord. I guarantee you, you will be beside yourself very soon. In just re if you just start by recognizing and being thankful for what God has given you, that's enough to get you going. And I don't mean you're, you're worked up in some frenzy, but you will be able to understand humility Thankfulness, the power that comes with that, it'll motivate you. But when you're praying for other people to see, you've got it. 
They see you. Good. What have you really accomplished? If anything, you've only built up yourself and taught people to follow after you. Look at verse 7. Praying without vain repetition. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. Very common in idolic uh, practices and cultures. It's trance-like stuff. We're told with Eastern mysticism today, empty your mind. I say fill it. <laughs> with what? The word, amen? For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Think of the prophets of Baal with our friend Elijah. How long did they scream at the sky? How long did they wail in begging for their God to hear them before they resorted to physical pain, the cutting of themselves? Did that little G God Baal ever show up? Nope. But then when Elijah called for God to rain it down on that soaking wet wood, it all burned up. How many times did Elijah ask? Once. And some will look at this next example of prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and say, oh, well, if I just repeat this, I'll be okay. Hang on. We should avoid vain repetition. This model prayer that the Lord has, it's not just for the tribulation saint. It's not just for a certain type of person. This is a model from Jesus himself. This is the proper way to pray. It's not too long. It's not too short. It's not getting the attention of other people. This is a good model. Now, some have taken this to the extreme, especially in the Catholic Church. We have to pray this every single time. And I can't tell you how many people know this prayer, but I have no idea what it means. They're violating verse 7, just praying to repeat. I've seen people pray the Lord's Prayer, and they just get through it as fast as they can. It's like, why? Because many people think there's some type of power in repetition. There's not. That's a heathen practice. Verse 8, Be not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. Whew, that's good. You know, yesterday I called Countryside Mall to make sure they didn't tow Louis's car. And I couldn't get through. So then I called the Countryside Non-Emergency Police Department. And it was like nobody knew what I was talking about. Someone was like, oh, well, the certificate's not verified on their website. I'm like, I just don't want his car to get towed. What do I do? They didn't know. Eventually, I got somebody at security, and it was so funny. I told Louie I was going outside to call and make sure his car wasn't towed, and I guess he thought he, should, he could beat me to it. So as I was on the phone with Countryside Mall Security, they're saying, someone just called about this, and I'm like, what? I go in, and Louie's like, I just called. I'm like, I just went outside to call. That's how I knew. He was doing fine. Everything was just fine. But nobody knew what my intent was. Isn't it good that I can go to God and he's not like, um, Jesse, Jesse Martinez, is that Jesse? What's the middle name? Sorry, I haven't checked up on you in a while. He knows exactly what I need before I ask it. We should pray to God with that in mind. We're not explaining something to him brand new, that, he's, that this has just occurred to him. And now look at this, this prayer model. Let's read the prayer in its entirety and then we'll break it down. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Now, these are those who are supposed to be the expectation of going into the kingdom. So I would say this is for believers, for children of God. We pray in this way. 
Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, some would say if you just repeat this, there's some type of magic like rubbing the genie's lamp. And ooh, all of a sudden now God will give you everything that you need. This is a model. And so when we look at it, we should see in what Jesus is saying, there is truth behind it in application. Let's take a look. Our Father. We should pray to God, not as our judicial judge, but as our Heavenly Father. It's a different kind of relationship. You're God's kid if you've put your trust in His Son. You go to Him with the respect of a father. That was different from Jewish culture. That's a new type of of, of thinking. Very rarely was God described as a father in the Old Testament. And now we have here Jesus petitioning as the Son of God, saying, when you pray, my disciples, my followers, you pray to the Lord as your Father. That's a a reminder for the proper relationship that we have with him. How about the next part? In heaven, we should be reminded that God is transcending the physical, and he's in the immaterial. He's in heaven. He's not going to be overcome by our circumstances here, and nor will we. Even if our circumstances do lead to our physical death, we are sealed until the day of redemption. Amen? And we'll be with the Lord. Who is where? In heaven. Hallowed be thy name. We are to give proper reverential respect or fear of God and treat him with proper respect. I am against this idea that is prominent in many worship songs today that we demand things of God. You slow it down and give God the respect that he deserves. Think about (laughs) some of you. You think about treating your dad that way. How would that have gone? Dad, I demand we go to McDonald's. I don't care what we have at home. I don't even think I'd be able to get the last part of that sentence out before I'm greeted with the back of the hand, you know? God bless my mother. She's in glory. But I remember one time, there was a little uh, place down here by the library. I think it was called a farm something. Not a pharmacy, but it was like a little place you like drive in they had like milk and all sorts of stuff there. And you just, you just ask what you want, drive out. It had the little cow as a logo. Oh, I'm taking myself back. But I remember I told my mom that I wanted to go get ice cream. It was right by a twisty treat that was on the way. Kid, ice cream, these things go together. Well, she told me what every kid loathes hearing no. And there was no good reason why there should have been a no. And she was saying something, and I remember I told her to close her mouth. Now, I say, you know, I, I, I say close your mouth, but what I really said was shut up. Not a good thing. I remember the back of that hand. Bah! That tooth that was there is gone now. <laughs> I learned a lesson. I may have a will. My mother was not abusive. Okay, please understand that. I got exactly what I asked for. (laughs) But I realized I treat my mom with respect. Same thing with my father. Now, I had to learn those lessons the hard way, but I'm not running into God's throne room of grace and saying, I demand you 
That's what the importance of your name is. It's set aside as the only name. Amen? And we know from Philippians and other places that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. So we ought to treat God with respect. Doesn't mean you walk on eggshells either. You can bust into the throne room of grace and fall on your knees and say, Dad, I need you, and he will hear you. But boy, if you come in there thinking, my will before yours, problems. A lot of people pray that way, and then they get upset when God does not answer their prayers they'd like. Mm. Thy kingdom come. Many people say, well, see, this is why this is for tribulational saints only, because we're not looking for the kingdom. But let me ask you a question. Are we really not looking for the kingdom? We are. We know now what these disciples did not know, that there's a period in between that. I'm looking for the kingdom by looking for the second coming, which is preceded by the rapture. I want the Lord to come back and rule and reign, amen? That's who should be running for any office. You want things done correctly. But I'm looking for that kingdom, and I'm praying for it to come. By the way, this is a very good place for you to notice with those who say, they're amillennialist, which means there is no kingdom. This is metaphorical. Why did Jesus ask that we pray for it? And by the way, in his arrival did not mean the kingdom was starting now. A lot of people believe that. Covenant theologians teach this idea that Jesus started the kingdom and we're going to finish it. They rejected Jesus. So his kingdom is yet to come. And aren't you glad that we're not living in his kingdom now if this is what it was? be problems major problems thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven this is where i want to spend just a little bit of time i'm looking at it and that's really all that we have left but this is for the believers should be reminded for god's will to be done over their own will this is this is very important why is this so because there's a way for us to deceive ourselves and say my will is god's will and we start praying, thinking that we're deceiving God into doing what we really want. What is God's will for us? I've laid out four very quick things. First of all, I'm going to start with number two, and then I'll tell you what number one is. We'll go two, three, four, and then one. For, second one here, we need to win souls. First Thessalonians 2, 4, we have been given the responsibility of the gospel. We need to go get it out to people. The third thing there is to build the church. And that is done by being here, by financially supporting, and getting behind it in volunteer work. This building is not why we're here. The people is why we're here. Start thinking of the church that way. When you, th when you say, I'm going to church, it's not I'm going to the place, 4811 George Road, where God lives. <laughs> he, you're, uh, Gary had for the scripture reading in 2 Corinthians 6, you're the temple. Act like it. When you see your brother and sister in need, come alongside. And if that's done by being here on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know, a great resolution is to commit. When the door is open for a service, be here. I think you'd be blessed by it. Then we need to add to our faith. That's a part of God's will in 2 Peter 1, 5-7. But prominently above all of those things is this instruction. Hold your spot in Matthew, and go to 1 John 3. Above going to church, above leading souls to Christ, 
You want to be able to do those things, adding to your faith? You need to love one another by abiding in Christ. This is so often missed. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18 says this, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Look at chapter 4 in verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You want to be a good soul winner? You want to be faithful in church? You want to be a good parent to your kids? You want to be a good spouse? You want to be profitable? Abide in Christ and love one another. 1 Corinthians 13 is very important. You can have all things and have nothing if you don't have love. That was the problem in Corinth. They loved themselves. Ooh, I'm of Paul. Ooh, I'm of Apollos. Ooh, who are these men but messengers? We'd do well as a church body here at Calvary to love one another and to have that attitude in prayer. God, not my will, your will. And that doesn't mean you say that and then you go back to your house and you say, I really want it my way. God will work that out. It's like a kink in your back. God will work it out. It'll be painful, but guess what? He'll work it out. Now, the amount of pain and discomfort that you experience is totally based on how much you hold on to your way. I think of that Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. I almost thought about reading the lyrics to that song to you because I think that song is a perfect encapsulation of man's desire to do what he wants. Even in that song, he says, I'm not of the one who kneels. Woo! I hope Frank had a change of mind. I don't really even know what he's trying to get by that point. But there's power in prayer. Yielding our will to God's will, what else better is there? But do you know what the world says? Weak. You're not creative enough. You're not imaginative enough. You're not strong enough to do it your own way. No, I'm trusting in God who's going to have all things his way anyway. Amen? And that's the last part that we see here. Verse 11 of Matthew 6. I, I, I take 11, 12, and 13 and kind of lump them all into one. Because the example is given. Give us this day our daily bread. We look to him for our needs. Think of that man, George Mueller. You read his bio. It's interesting. The man of prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is very important. We live in the way of forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Amen? That'll change you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Can God deliver you from Satan's traps and devices? Yes. And you say, well, how? Look at how Jesus escaped them. What did Jesus do? He quoted the word. He quoted himself. <laughs> now, you're not going there and saying... I wrote a poem one time, devil. And listen to this. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I say no. Hmm. I'm not going to work. Know God's word and put it into practice. That's how you escape the power of the devil. 
you start praying that way this year, when you have a need, you start looking at, at, at things in this way, it'll change you. You say, well, my need is not really that great, but I do have this need, and I'm glad I know the one who can solve it. And then, of course, the last part in 13, for thine, God, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You put that in light of the man who prays in public for the, for the reward of men, of the man who prays in vain repetition, or the one who prays thinking God will hear him if he speaks loudly and clearly and more often. That last part of the Lord's Prayer is very important. It's all for him. And you'd be wise to remember that. The title of our study this morning is Let Us Pray. I want you and I am encouraging you to pray in that way. If it is helpful to you to memorize the Lord's Prayer and the application behind it, there's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer. But if you think it's a charm, if you think there's some special power in it because it's the Lord's Prayer you're going to cheat yourself. The words reveal the intentions behind them. Ask yourself questions like, do I believe that God is able to do good for me? I think sometimes people will go, you know what, I don't. I'm praying to God as a formality because I'm angry. Things have not gone the way that I want. Say that again. How about we let him do what is right? You're going to find out. Prayer becomes a joy. This is how you can pray without ceasing. It's not that you're mindlessly repeating some prayer. It's the way that you think. You're in communication to God. Isn't that a great way to start today? Let alone, we, got, we have today, right? You can close your Bibles. Or excuse me, actually, go to 1 Corinthians 11 because... We do have communion. You started today however you started it. I don't know. But you've got today to pray to the Lord. Talk to your dad. Those of you who have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can boldly approach the throne room of grace, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, that we can obtain mercy in our time of need. A lot of people would do well to recognize that. Regardless of what kind of life you're leading, God will hear you. Listen to me now. God will hear you. But there's also an expectation that you're obedient. You can't ask for the Lord's will to be done and then disobey him. That's a contradiction. You can't ask for blessings and, 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 and different deliverance when you're putting yourself in the situation where you're robbing your own self of a blessing. Get right with God. That needs to be said more often. There's, there's, there's too much, I don't want to offend people. I'm not the offender. It's the people that are making that choice to disobey God. A wise man speaks the truth regardless of what condition the person who's hearing it is in. We need more of that. That doesn't mean I'm going to start getting real angry up here, you know. Oh, Pastor Jesse's angry. He's telling us God's will. No. But there may be some things that I say that offend you. And you've got to ask yourself why. If, if Pastor Jesse's reading the Word and telling me what the Word says, that means God's telling me something. And maybe I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. So you change. You make that change. 
before we get into communion, where we remember the Lord's body and his blood that was shed for us, I want to make sure. I know we have many new people here today, and I, I know there's people that have been here for years. But regardless of how long you've been here or whatever condition you are in life, I want you to know for sure that when you die and you're absent from this body here, you'll be with the Lord. It's the greatest assurance we can ever have. You can pray in all these great ways that we talked about today with the right attitude, all that kind of stuff, and still end up going to hell. What a tragedy that would be. And so now I may have piqued your interest and you say, well, how do I know I'm going to heaven? I want to explain that to you with this illustration. This hand is going to represent you and me, everybody in the entire world, and this will represent sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of God. What is that glory? Perfection, no sin. We all fall short. That word sin means to miss the mark. I, standing here in front of you today, I have sin. I am a sinner. I'm not standing up here saying I've achieved something great. This separates me from God. Now I have a solution for this that when I was 12 years old, I applied. But I could never get to heaven with this. I have to be absolutely perfect. I miss the mark. Now God, he loves me, but he hates all sin because it separates us from him. The wages or payment for sin is eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. That's why I say you can learn how to pray and be the greatest Christian on earth and still miss heaven. You don't have this sin paid for. Now, many world religions will say, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray and study, if I'm a good person, that will pay for my sin. Like they imagine this is some credit card statement and good works every day are, are, are a minimum payment so that you can pay for sin. The wages of sin is death. It's not good works. Somebody's got to die for this. There is no remission for sin without the shedding of blood. If I were to die for my own sin, I could do nothing. I would just spend an eternity in hell. That's why Jesus died in my place. He died in your place. He died in the, in, in the place of God's enemies. This hand will represent Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, fully God and fully man. And what Jesus did on the cross was not demonstrate to us how we should live in order to get into heaven. He did what we could not do. For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in him, that whosoever, boy, so many people want to classify the whosoever. God said it's anybody. You here today, you don't know who, you may say, Pastor, you don't know how bad I am. Doesn't matter. God does, and he already sent his son for you. Whosoever believeth, put your trust in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you, as a sinner, put your trust in the only begotten Son of God, whose name is Jesus Christ, that what he did was to pay for your sin, you receive the righteousness of God. In God's courtroom, you are justified. And that ruling of justification lasts forever. If you're here today and you walked in trusting in yourself, your family's religion, your repetition of good works, I'm imploring you from a place of humility 
I'm asking that you change your mind and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Would you pray with me, please? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I came in not knowing where I would spend eternity. I was trusting in myself and my good works. I've changed my mind and put my trust in the Son of God, whose name is Jesus, who shed his blood, died on Calvary, was buried and raised again for my sin. Would you pray for me? If that is you this morning, would you just raise your hand and let me know that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ? I would like to pray for you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed for your privacy. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but we don't want you to feel any pressure. Is there anyone at all by a raise of hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I just trusted in Jesus Christ. I know I'm going to heaven. Anyone at all before we close? Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. We're going to take a few moments here to pray. I want you to pray with the attitude of communion, meaning if there is sin in your life that you have not dealt with, meaning you have not come to an agreement with God that it is sin, there are things in your life that you have put before the Lord. You've made an idol to it. Would you talk to him and confess it? You're not confessing it so that you can be doubly extra sure you're going to heaven. You're confessing it because that sin gets in the way of a proper walk with our Lord. After you've confessed your sin, would you dwell on the Lord and his suffering for you? The cross that he collapsed under the weight of to bear your sins and the blood that was spilt to pay for those sins. I'll give you a few minutes here in prayer and then we'll come back and partake of the elements.
Let's come back to the Lord together here. Communion is a reminder of what the Lord did to pay for our sin. There is nothing special in the elements save for what they represent. This is supposed to help us. We do this once a month. We don't want it to become ritualistic in nature, but this is to remind us of the great cost our Savior bore for our sin. This is supposed to keep you sensitive as you go about the Christian life, and you are tempted to sin. We all are. We're to remember the cost that Jesus paid for that. This will keep you close to him. There's a little tab on the front. If you pull that back, you'll reveal the wafer portion. This represents the Lord's body. And we'll have prayer in remembrance of his body. Will you join me, please? Father, we thank you for the body of your son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know that he was beaten brutally, and he was an innocent man, perfect in every way. False witnesses had to be brought against him in a false trial. But he endured that beating for us. So we remember it, and we thank God for it, because what it means for our sin. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. You can prepare the second part here. This is a little bit tougher. Please be careful. This represents the Lord's blood. I think, no, I know how precious the Lord's blood is. It's a very strong warning in the book of Hebrews. For God's children not to trample this by denying the chastening hand of God, by living a life that does not line up with the truth of God's word. You are forever a child of God if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. And you may live as you please, but if it is in sin, you will not get away with it. We are to remember this blood, this which is just a representation. But we are to remember the price of that sin. And when we're tempted to just live in it willy-nilly, no problem, we ought to think again. That's the purpose of our communion today. Would you join me in prayer for the Lord's body, or excuse me, for his blood? Father, we now come to you and remember the blood of your son, which has been offered and accepted. Praise God, it's been accepted. But we know the high price and cost that came with it. Let us not be enslaved to sin. We've been delivered from it. And we remember the blood of Jesus. In his name we pray these things. Amen. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come.
What a great way to start off the new year.